Greg Waugh and Dan Beeston are smart enough to know better, but are you? Welcome to Smart Enough to Know Better, a podcast of science, comedy, and ignorance. I'm Greg Waugh. And I'm Dan Beeston. And this is episode 112, where we will be interviewing... Uh, Friend of the show, Michelle Bannister. Professional, well done. Uh, <laughs> and with that exciting... <laughs> oh, God. And with that exciting and beginning... And all your laughing and cackling, you're still the most professional yeah, this Yeah, I know. It's, it's a good start. It's a good start. Well, you know what? We are not prepared for this. No. Why don't we go straight into the interview? <laughs> Welcome back to the podcast, Dr. Michelle Bannister from the University of Victoria in Canada. Thank you very much. We have got you back, uh, Michelle, to chat about all things trans-Neptunian. Every time you're our go-to person when we have to talk about anything that's lurking in the edge of our solar system. It's a big place. It's a, it is finding a big, new things. That's, that's right. So the last time we chatted, at that point, New Horizons was charging towards Pluto, and it was months and months and months away. With a shield up like a like a Roman t- tortoise warrior. <laughs> <laughs> is that a thing? Yeah, yeah. The, the Romans they did that tortoise thing where they put all put their shields up on, on top. Oh, of like a, oh, right, I see. Yes, it was I, a tortoise yeah. attack. I was like, yeah, that's, they, that's right. And they just marched. But yes, except it was one of them. Anyway, so we didn't know. And that point in time, Pluto was still this blurry Hubble image, really a couple of pixels across, and we knew nothing about it. But now, of course, we know everything about it. It's all its secrets laid bare. Can I just ask, because our audience has probably learned a lot about Pluto since then, and we've talked about it on the podcast a bit, what was the most amazing thing that you saw or you learned about the New Horizon mission that you didn't think you'd ever know? I am so happy we got to see the glaciers flowing. I, I think that's absolutely wonderful. On Pluto, you have this big, lovely heart feature with really big and smooth, shiny doesn't have a single crater on it that's Ooh. older than 10 million years. So it's it's a surface of renewal and change and really, really young for something mm. that's on an object that's 4 billion years old and, and isn't anticipated to be changing a lot in that time. Mm. And then from this big highland region that's this very smooth ice, you have these wonderful nitrogen glaciers flowing out towards mountains of water ice at the edges. It always blows me away. I, I, I'm still getting my head around the concept that you go, this water ice is so cold, it becomes, in inverted commas, the rock. And the nitrogen, which is so cold, becomes the ice that when you think, I mean, it is an ice, but you think it's like, okay, what you normally think is the water ice is not the water ice. Oh, sorry, I just had to get my head oh, around. It's, it's, it's not even Alice in Wonderland territory. Yeah. You know, we're at the other side of yeah, that. That's, it's, 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 <laughs> it's just mad. Now, was it surprising to scientists that Pluto was ice? It wasn't just a big ball of rock? Was that not a... It was actually exactly what we hoped to find. Oh. Like, you go back 20 years and there's these beautifully breathless papers about, wouldn't it be wonderful if we could get to Pluto and see the ammonia and frosting the mountains and maybe there'll be mountains? 
maybe they'll be water ice. Oh, okay. So those... maybe they'll be glaciers. It's <laughs> oh. a discussion about what nitrogen would do if it's at fifty degrees <laughs> above absolute zero. Maybe there'll be an eight hundred kilometer wide hut love heart. <laughs> that would well, be... <laughs> the love heart is is amazing. It seems at the moment that it's a huge basin, and the implication of a basin is something hit Pluto very, very hard a very long time ago. Huh. And then it refilled. So it's an impact basin that refilled with this ooze of nitrogen coming up through. And the question is, is that oozing from inside Pluto? Is it being renewed in the present day? Mm. Is this actually Pluto's bleeding heart of nitrogen? Oh, <laughs> oh it's Pluto's cold bleeding heart. That's it's right. a broken heart. It never, it never mended its heart. Oh, and now we just... And I saw a great cartoon which shows uh, like a, it's New Horizons charging towards Pluto and Pluto's really happy to see it coming. And then, of course, New Horizon charges past and Pluto's looking really sad holding its heart. And I was like, oh, because everyone else was like, hooray! Like, is Pluto will be really happy we're here. But, of course, we left it. We just left it again. We were, bye, we're not even stopping. We're not going into orbit. We're just zooming past it 16 times the bullet. That's, that's just the way it is. <laughs> Get used to it, Pluto. <laughs> And we have years and years of images to come back yet because, you know, there's 10% of the data has been back, sent back so far of the imaging data. Oh, my goodness. So oh my it's God. just going to keep coming. <laughs> so do you know how slow the transmitter is on New Horizons? Like, uh, it makes 32 kilobit dial-up modems look really speedy. <laughs> I, I mean, it is across the solar system, but I still find that hilarious. Like, like I sit there sometimes and go, damn, this game won't load fast enough, and I'm, I'm full of rage. But when you've got actual <laughs> science coming from a... Like, you'd be like, oh, we have to wait how many years to get this photo? It <laughs> makes me very happy to think that even though there's no sound in space, somewhere out there, there is a machine trying to go... <laughs> For our younger listeners, that's the sound of a modem. You wouldn't. You wouldn't oh, there's so many. Sa- there are so many wonderful sounds from the early days of computing, which mm. are sort of lost to the other. And I think that someone is actually trying to make an archive of all those old sounds, like like Windows ninety five booting up and and, and and a floppy disk drive finding a read write error, like that thing where it keeps checking the drive, going. Would you like to fail this or abort it? <laughs> so. With well, if any of your listeners are in the Canberra area in the next year, really, and they go past Tidbinbilla out the back of Canberra and visit the Deep Space Network Centre, that's where one of the only three dishes in the world that can talk to New Horizons is located. Oh, wow. And you can stand in the visitor centre and watch as the dish talks to the spacecraft at the edge of the solar system. That's that, That's amazing. Does it talk <laughs> all the time or does it go, we'll log back in in 12 hours and, and, you know, and, um, and talk to it then? Well, just... well, we can only talk to it for part of a day because the thing is the Earth keeps rotating oh, and yes. Pluto is kind of off of that. <laughs> Sorry. So, yeah, <laughs> I, meant, I meant the system. I didn't mean that one. No, 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 no. Dan's laughing at me. Oh, no, no. It's, it's why there's three of them. We put There's one in, in California, there's one in Australia, and there's one in Spain near Madrid. And so you can actually, you could listen to one spacecraft continuously, but mm. there's a lot of spacecraft now. There's more than 30, there's like 30, 40 spacecraft 
all exploring different worlds in the solar system at the moment. And they all have really exciting things to tell us, and they all have to send it back. So fighting for time of who gets to talk to the dishes and send back their data at different times is it's quite a balancing act. Do you think there's, like, sometimes the, the people on the ground who collect this information are like, oh, yeah, New Horizons, I'm really excited. Oh, this mission, whatever. Well, okay, fine. We, we, we have to do the boring mission now of that one we don't really like. <laughs> Does it have favourites is what I mean? Do you think they argue about, no, no, we want to point at that one today. They're like children. All of them are <laughs> They're all exciting. Oh, all our kids are out there. Pluto's bullshit. Pluto's bullshit. Oh, shut up. You think Titan's so that's good? Right, that's right. You and, your, you and your comets. No one likes comets. Anyway, yeah, that's fine. Um, so we, We're listening for the signal of extraterrestrial life. Everyone, everyone, give him more time. <laughs> well, the, so with, with Pluto, it's moving around. Things are changing on Pluto. But mm. could be shot past. We've taken all these photos. Do we know if some of the features are permanent features or might be gone? Because... If you take a photo now... Yeah, that is a really, really good question. How much is it changing and how fast is it changing? Mm. If we looked in 20 years' time, would we see that one of the things that they released with the next round of high-resolution imagery that's coming is some chunks of the mountains on Pluto. They've actually drifted into place by the looks of it. There's chunks of... uh, (laughs) Back in Alice in Wonderland again. Chunks of water ice that are floating on nitrogen glaciers that are gently gliding them down from the highlands out across (laughs) towards the edge of the heart. This is really familiar behaviour here on Earth because you have glaciers that carry big chunks of rock that fall on them or are entrained in them, Mm. and then they carry them out into the edges and then the glacier melts and goes away. Mm. And you get just an enormous rock randomly left in the middle of the landscape. Mm, mm. They're known as erratics. Erratics, right, yes. And you can see these in a few, you know, a fair few parts of Australia. Sometimes you find them on the seabed where a glacier that comes down to the edge of a landmass will have a rock on the ice raft and the edge of the glacier will break off. The rock will be floating out on its raft of ice. Then the ice raft melts and the rock does what the rock has to do and falls to the bottom <laughs> of the sea. <laughs> and so when you sail a ship across and look down with radar at the seafloor, suddenly mm. you see a giant rock That's just dead. sitting there randomly. Erratically, you could say. As in, Erratically. Uh, ah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So on Pluto, we may be seeing that happening here as we have water ice erratics floating on nitrogen glaciers. Does that mean at the edge of the heart there's like a big mountain range of water ice where the rocks are all turned up? Like, Are you talking, talking boulder size? Are you talking mountain size of water ice? Uh, small mountains. Small yeah. mountains. Oh, um, well, that's not that yeah, impressive. Like bigger, bigger than a building. <laughs> bigger so the resolution they can get down to is a few tens of metres now with the really high-resolution imagery from the that's New Horizons a... flyby. <laughs> Hence why it's going to take years to send it back over an yeah. 8-bit modem. <laughs> <Yeah>. oh, <laughs> that's incredible. So does that mean there's going to be a pile of, of boulders and rocks at the edge of the heart? Yeah, potentially. But we don't really know how long it takes for the... How, how stable is a water ice boulder mm. over a billion, a billion or so years? Okay. So, like, what do they look like as they erode? And there's people poring over this high-resolution imagery and trying to decipher this at the moment. So, and, okay, the next question then, I read somewhere in the past that Pluto seemed to have an atmosphere and that it's an atmosphere that changes due to its orbit because it gets colder and, and it, the further it goes away and that sort of stuff. Is that atmosphere just its ground... Uh, uh, sublimating. Or, or, mm, or the melting. atmosphere has turned out to be really quite complex, beautifully so. There's a limit to how much we could discern about the atmosphere from the ground. The way we measured the atmosphere from here on Earth was that you would wait for Pluto to pass in front of a star. 
and the light from the star would be obscured by Pluto and wink out. But it would wink out slowly just as it approached Pluto, then vanish as it was behind Pluto's disk, and then reappear slowly again on the other side. And from the shape of that dip as it winked out and then winked back in again, you can actually pick up the structure of the layers in the atmosphere. <laughs> so we had a good idea that you know Pluto had a tropopause and atmospheric structural layering like our own oh Earth Oh, my does. goodness. And that's before we got there, before New Horizons got there. Yeah, right. but the really fun thing was when New Horizons goes past Pluto, it could look back at such an angle that it could see the sun doing the same thing, backlighting Pluto. Mm. And you could see these hazes in the atmosphere, which was something that was not able to be picked up from the measurements from Earth. And you could see that these hazes just tinting this image a beautiful, almost surreal shade of blue. Blue? That's, that, mm. that's what it's. So what, what gases make it glow blue or well Um, it also depended what wavelength of light you were looking in as well right so they they look in the visual what our eyes see and they also looked in the near infrared what your tv remote uses to communicate with the tv Mm. and in the, the way that the light scattered off the hazes in those different wavelengths will tell us a lot about what the hazes are made of Oh, man, that's, that's, that's pretty incredible. Is Pluto's atmosphere decreasing or increasing at the moment? Like, is it on the way out or the way in? That was a big argument. There was a, a fair decade or so of debate. So Pluto, being near the plane of the galaxy, had the convenient thing of moving in front of quite a few stars over the last few years. It's basically crossing right through the middle of the Milky Way at the moment. Oh, right. the sky. <laughs> yeah. You're basically strobing. That's right. <laughs> yep, yeah, pretty much. Just go, Pluto. <laughs> Disco Pluto made it very, very handy to keep making these measurements of the atmosphere. So it started at about 88, 89, and right up until the present, they've been able to get a measurement of the atmosphere every few years. So there was a big argument before New Horizons got to Pluto that the atmosphere might actually be going to condense out altogether. Because mm, mm. Pluto's orbit brings it in only 30 times further from the sun than we are here on Earth. <laughs> but it's not round, it's elliptical. So mm. it takes it out a fair bit further. So there was an argument that when it gets to the far part of its orbit, that would be when the atmosphere could get cold enough that maybe it could collapse entirely onto Pluto's surface. Mm. And, and we, don't, we don't think that's going to happen. Oh, Pluto's okay. atmosphere is going to stay there the whole way around its orbit. That's, What's oh, wow. the last element to turn into liquid and drop to the ground? The atmosphere is more nitrogen than anything else, if I remember right. What if there was helium in there? That, that's very light. Yeah. yeah. Can't, Pluto can't hang on to helium. Mm. Hell, we can, uh, Earth can't yeah. hang on to helium. <laughs> right. <laughs> yes. You have to be like a massive planet to hang on to helium. That's right. Mm. Yeah, so you, yeah. You, you, what, stop what? wasting helium, everyone. Sorry to harp on about yeah. that. But. It just keeps vanishing. Yes. But there's heaps. There's heaps. We'll just go to Jupiter and get some more. <laughs> the sun uh. The sun is like 20%. It's, we'll just get it from the sun. Anyway. Uh, <laughs> yeah. no, but one of the things New Horizons found was that Pluto actually has the big nitrogen tail as its atmosphere. The sun's light is pushing on Pluto's atmosphere. Hmm. And basically... In a sense, Pluto is a very big comet. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Great big <laughs> icy rock. Yeah. Yep. Just a big tail of nitrogen streaming out away from the sun. Do we have that? Do we have a tail uh, at all? We have, we have a little bit, but 
we don't we don't lose too much. We're a good big planet that hangs on to okay. the Okay. So we, we just look a little bit like a Bart Simpson head we, with we, the, like the stuff coming off the head. We have a magnetic field, so that protects ah, us. Ah, right. So Pluto, I'm assuming, doesn't have a magnetic field of any sort, of any any appreciable sort. I don't remember the New Horizons team reporting any results on the magnetic field. That would be I'd weird, be, though, I'd, wouldn't it, if it I'd did? I'd be really surprised if it did have a strong one. Yeah. It might have a bit of a residual one. Yeah, it would be surprised me too. It, it, should we think of Pluto like Earth? Do you think it has like a iron core and a crust made of rocks and then, then gets to ices and, and then that's then the surface? Or it, it wouldn't it, would it be not that structured? It'll be structured. It'll be a, a slightly stranger structure in the sense of the outside will be a shell of ice, of mostly water ice, and all these other fun gunky molecules on the surface like ammonia and nitrogen and a bit of methane and carbon monoxide, all kinds of funky bathroom <laughs> chemicals type of stuff. <laughs> but once, if you go deeper and deeper into Pluto, if you, if you had a magic drill that could just keep going in and in and in, one of the things we're trying to work out at the moment is if you go down tens of kilometres, would you actually break through into a liquid ocean? Oh, oh. A liquid, actually, you mean, wow, okay, so, yeah. oh, wow, I didn't know that. That's, and so, oh. the question, when you make a planet, it would have a lot of heat inside it left over from the initial radioisotopes that are in the early solar system. These are radioactive elements that decay pretty quickly on the order of a few tens of millions of years. So they're a brief heat source and then they're gone. Hmm. So you have an initial burst of heat that Pluto would have had inside it. But then you also have another big thing, which is the impact that formed Charon. So Pluto's big moon, Charon, was formed by a massive impact of Pluto with something else. Oh, wow. It was split up. So whatever, the Pluto was actually broken into two parts at some point. Whatever hit Pluto is now also part of the Pluto-Charon system. Oh, I see. Right. Okay. Yes. <laughs> It's like dipping a spoon into honey and then pulling it out again. Planetary collisions are really weird. <laughs> Which, and that happened with the Earth and the Moon, didn't it? Yeah, exactly mm. the same kind of thing. But, yeah, the way mass gets distributed between the two things after they hit each other and then flow out again and then gloop into separate objects, it's, it's worth thinking of it like flowing honey rather than like a Billion balls shattered. or something. Yeah, exactly. Wow, okay. So... Um, yeah, so it's it, it got so you impacted created Sharon. Yeah, so that would have left a lot of heat in the in the ah, system. I and see. the question is, could Pluto have hung on to enough of that heat? The heat gets dissipated by the tidal energy that goes into Pluto and Sharon. You know, they orbit each other in a circle. Sharon's face locked to Pluto, mm. so they're tidally locked. That's a lot of energy that has to go somewhere, and it generally goes into heat inside the body. I never even heard about the idea of a, a liquid ocean, maybe on Pluto inside. So of course, that, mm. as soon as a lot of work on that. It's that's that's incredible. So if if it's there, of course, it gets everyone excited. Are you talking a water ocean or just liquid? It would be a primarily water ocean, maybe with wow. a bit of other stuff, maybe that's... a bit of ammonia. Uh, yeah. And of course, the moment you say liquid ocean of water, everyone starts to go. You're not allowed to mention the L word. Ah, right. <laughs> <laughs> and things are maybe there. It's like a giant space eclair. All crunchy on the outside, and all gooey in the centre. Oh, Absolutely. That's yep. a, so, okay, don't mention the other word. You go all the way to the middle, and you will find <laughs> some kind of rocky heart. 
Oh, the yeah. very core of Pluto will be more rocky than it is anything else. Right. Okay. That's but we have an iron core. They they would have a well. They. I'm not saying they. We're not. Uh, we're not. They. Admi- they're admitting. We're not admitting to anyone. Space plutons. <laughs> we're not saying that at all. <laughs> but of course, that that's all interesting. And Pluto is a fascinating thing, and there's lots of science coming from that. But it's no longer the ninth planet. I mean, that's we've lost interest in it. Then there are people out there trying it's to gone. fight for no it. No more. No more ninth planet. No more ninth planet. It's all gone. That's the thing. So and so Neil deGrasse Tyson's happy. He's the Pluto killer. So that's the <laughs> that's the end of that. But of course now. Amazing of amazingness, I've seen in the news that, of course, there is a Planet Nine. It's supposedly massive, and it's out there, and it's, it's so And far- it's filled with life. And filled with just a teeming zoo. You've heard it here first. We've seen pictures there. So there's this talk now of... of <laughs> we've heard this, like, suddenly the news erupted in the concept of Planet Nine is back, and it's not Pluto. And Pluto went, oh, son of a monkey. So lay us on it, Michelle. Okay. Tell us all about the amazing Planet Nine and how we can all buy tickets to fly intergalactically there, well, interplanetarily there. So nothing has actually been discovered yet, oh. by the way. Oh, that's the end of the interview. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> right, no. <laughs> it doesn't exist. Good night. <laughs> to get to Planet Nine, yes. I have to tell you a story. Okay. The story begins with taking a lot of big telescopes and looking at the sky in a lot of different places. Mm-hmm. Had we never done that before? <laughs> that seems, it seems like an obvious yeah. thing. There was a guy called Galileo Galilei I'm pretty certain it's something like this. People have been doing this for a long time. And it's really tempting to go, I've looked at some of the sky. Hey, look, I found a thing. Are there more things? Mm. Are there more things beyond that thing? Mm. Well, I can now see out to this distance. Can I see even further? Mm. So we've been trying to explore the outer solar system really methodically for the last while. And so people have pretty much explored the entire northern and southern sky um, to different depths. And as telescopes got bigger and bigger, you're able to look both further and see objects that would be smaller. So what we call the magnitude limit, the faintest thing that you can see, starts to be pushed back and back. Hmm. There's a trade-off here. A very big telescope normally can't see a very large area of sky. It can take one image, but it can see a tiny pinprick of sky with that image. So there aren't many big telescopes in the world that can also look at a large area of sky at the same time what we call having a large field of view. In fact, there's maybe three telescopes in the world that have cameras on them that can take a picture of an area of sky that covers the full moon in one go. <laughs> yes, that's pretty small. <laughs> when you compare it with the sky. They should do it early in the evening when the moon's bigger. <laughs> I've, I've, I've misinterpreted what she's saying here, haven't I? <laughs> <laughs> if, we, if we do all our observations at 6 o'clock at night, we can get a lot more science done. The size of the moon looks a lot bigger. <laughs> that's... that's yeah, sorry. It's yes. really hard to end up searching the whole sky for something that's very small and very faint. Mm, mm. And you have another problem. To be able to find something in the distant part of the solar system, you have to image it at least three times. Mm. So now you need a big telescope not just to look at the sky, you needed to look at the same piece of the sky more than once. And this means you look at the sky, you look at the sky, the stars stay in the same place, and the things in our solar system move. Mm. So you, you don't mean one after the other. You mean like one night to the next or one week to the next or something like exactly. that? Exactly. Okay, yeah. yeah. So you don't need to just look at the sky. You need to look at the sky at least three times. Mm. And, and sure... you need to do this over a long period of time. And I'm... this is expensive. Telescopes are... People want to do a lot of things with them, Mm. and they're not cheap for countries to run either. So 
doing this kind of work is something that takes a lot of time and a lot of effort. So mm. it's not easy to look for distant objects in the solar system. And I'm guessing amateur astronomers, though they make a lot of amazing discoveries and help out in different ways, this is something they just couldn't do because the instruments wouldn't be powerful enough. Like the, the average person couldn't purchase something that could help with this. Amateur astronomers do an amazing amount of really good work, but mm. sky surveying is something that a lot of the times amateurs are much better at focusing on individual targets and being able to tell us a lot about say, variable stars. There's mm. an amazing association of variable star observers that have really <laughs> done a lot to tell us about how stars work and how they change over time. Mm. But that's easy because you know where the star is and you know how it's changing. Mm. Or mm. the amateurs are also really great at helping follow up of an asteroid that's discovered and it might be lost by the big telescopes because they can't get there in time or mm. they're not in the right part of the world to see it in time. And they're great at making sure that we don't lose those kinds of objects. But for going really deep, you need these telescopes. They're 100 tons in mass, <laughs> and their mirrors are up to 10 metres across. Wow. That's... These are huge multi-million dollar facilities. Yeah. I love the fact that at the, at the very core of these things, really, they're still just a bit of curved glass. I mean, I know there's a lot more to that, but... It's a light bucket. It's still a light bucket, yeah. <laughs> it's just a 10-metre-across piece of glass you have to somehow make and flex and keep in a shape because gravity tries to bend it. And, oh, so mm -hmm. just, but still... Just, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's yep. just... It's, it's, like, oh, anyway, <laughs> amazing. Telescopes are fantastic. But, yeah, okay, so this part of the story is it's hard to look at a lot of the sky. And the other thing is, so you looked at the sky. Cool. Did you find something? No. <laughs> Did you tell people where you didn't find things? And this ends up being really <laughs> that, important. That would be really hard to like, there where, they're no, where nothing is. Exactly. You mean there? Yep. No, no, there where nothing is. You mean there? <laughs> no, there where nothing is. <laughs> right. And it's hard. You have to go, okay, if you're looking for your keys, you can't just look under the streetlight. Mm-hmm. You have to say, I looked under all the trees where it was pitch black and I was tripping over my shoelaces. <laughs> Otherwise, you don't know where you've looked. Mm. So the problem that we have is a few things have been found in the outer solar system that are kind of un on unusual orbits. Mm. But we don't really understand yet how they relate to the whole of the solar system's population. Mm. What the Tigan and Brown published was a really nice theoretical study of if you run a model of the gravity of the solar system with an extra large massive planet stuck a few hundred astronomical units out, what effect would it have on a theoretical population of objects in the outer solar system? Right. And Constantine was able to show with this, these objects would line up in a particular way and form a particular clumping on the sky. Right, yes. So it would basically <laughs> change the orbits of these, of these things that we can see. Right, which is a really cool effect that things would have. Mm. The problem is, do the few objects that have been observed actually match this? Or is this the effect that the objects that were found had the same problem of having found the keys always under the lamppost. We've only uh, been looking under the lamppost. So is this a real effect or is it something that's been produced by the way we've been looking at the sky? Is it an illusion of what we found so far? Aha. Mm. Uh -huh. right. So are you trying to say there's no Planet Nine? That's what you've just that's what you're really saying. I think here. what she's saying is there's two. <laughs> <laughs> there's the one, think, 
Angus, we need more telescope time. Right. <laughs> so when I was reading about this, I was thinking in my head, I know planets can migrate, but they were, they were saying things like it would be like a Neptune-sized world a long, 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 long way away, like much further than Pluto, ridiculously far. And I, my brain went, where did this material come from to make such a large planet if you have a disc that's thicker in the center near the sun or the protosun that's where all the material is and it gets thinner as it goes out which i think is the right way of thinking about it yeah and so, so that's a, that's where would a it very, come from <laughs> that's a really problematic question is yeah. how do you put something that big and that massive in the outer solar system without it disturbing the intricate structure that we do see and that we do have a good observational understanding mm. of in the kuiper belt today yeah didn't yeah. you say last time you were on though that there used to be another planet in the solar system that got flicked out as jupiter and saturn switched places yeah we could have had a fifth planet the question is in that kind of flicking, it's more the kind of flick where you push the books off the edge of the table and they crash to the, to the ah. floor rather than... And they carefully teeter on the edge of the table, just balance, just so, hmm. and then sit there for the next day. Okay, so it was a, it was a, it was a it, sledgehammer yeah. rather than a, a gentle push. Yeah. 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 And so to, to flick an ice giant out of the inner solar system hmm. and then capture it onto... Half of the problem with that is that to capture it again, this is the proposed Planet Nine is actually way too close for that. It's oh, actually right. really close as the structure of the outer solar system goes. If you're going to flick <laughs> something out, maybe you could capture it to a few tens of thousands of astronomical units out. Mm. But capturing it into only a few hundred, mm. that's really hard to do. You'd have to be mm. like a, another something out, like a, com- a whole bunch of comets just hitting it all in the right place. <laughs> Yeah. (laughs) I like answers for the solar system that don't involve very, very special arrangements. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So could this Planet Nine, which probably doesn't exist, it's the giant planet that people conspiracy people, it's coming to crush us all, and it's it's barreling into the centre of the solar system. Well, not barreling. The Earth is perfectly safe. This is coming nowhere near anything in the solar system that we don't. Would it be able to be imaged at that distance, even of that size, would, is it something that we could see, he says, doing inverted commas with his fingers, or is it just something we'd only be able to infer from its effects, if it was there? <laughs> yes to both. Oh. So if it was there, it would produce a signature on the little objects in the outer solar system, of which there are hundreds of thousands. They zip in relatively close to the sun, by, which I, by close I mean 40 times further out than the Earth orbits around the sun. Right. And then they go out to several hundred, maybe a, as much as a thousand or fifteen hundred times further from the sun than the Earth is. Mm. So between forty and fifteen hundred astronomical units. Wow. And these scattering objects, there's there's quite a few of them, and they're perturbed. Um, their gravity, their, their orbits are shaped by the gravity of Neptune, mm. but they're going out into the region where this kind of object would orbit, so they'd also be influenced by that. So are these comets that you're talking about, or, or just, just... No, they're, they're solar system objects. So comets are in the 50,000 astronomical right. unit region. <laughs> I'm, I'm enjoying so much how people are getting to grips with the scale of the outer solar system as part of this. <laughs> normally just go, like, yeah, yeah, that's what's happening in my brain. I'm getting to grips with quiet. it. Everyone just goes, oh, hang on, wait a minute. <laughs> Big numbers. Well, it's kind of like, I think of the, like the solar system inside of Neptune is like this little cosy place where you can talk about things in terms of astronomical units, the distance from the Earth to the Sun, mm. in like numbers between 1 and 40. Mm. And then you get into the outer solar system, as I think of it, where it's suddenly you're going between 40 and 90. Mm. And this is still like the backyard, right? <laughs> and then 
now we're talking about the inner Oort cloud, and that's like between 100 and 2,000 astronomical <laughs> units. And then suddenly you go comets, and it's like 50,000. Yeah, uh, <laughs> that's getting them that's, way out there. And then you just start using that little e in all your numbers, and I just get lost. That's then. exponential. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Then we worry about gravity. Tides from the rest of the galaxy and that kind of problem. <laughs> yes, if a star passes too close. Oh, no, yeah. So these are these are just rocks that are being scattered from yeah, the inner solar system. It, it sounds like are... trying to find a boat based on how the sand is washing up on the beach. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> this, is like try, this is trying to figure out if a whale went by looking at the wakes on the top of the water. That's crazy. So, mm. the, the, if so we... that's, a, that's one effect you can see. Mm. Uh, if we could use those effects on the little tiny worlds to figure out where it is, or if one of these big sky surveys, like the one I'm involved with, or other ones using another telescope in Hawaii, the Subaru camera, there's one in Chile, the Dark Energy Survey uses another big camera. If one of those happens to image it, what it will look like is a single point of light. You won't even be able to resolve a single feature on it. It'll just be one point of light. <laughs> And it will be moving very, very slowly. Mm. How slowly will depend if it's on the close part of its orbit, in which case it'll take between weeks and years to see its motion across the sky. Oh. <laughs> or if it's on the far part of its orbit, then it might even be out of the magnitude depth that these you know, oh eight-meter light buckets can see. And it will take years to see it move across the sky. You said you have to take three photos, but it's so far away. You have to take a photo of a part of the sky that may have nothing in it and then, like, wait, what, weeks, months, years, and then take another yes. photo? I didn't say this was a quick process. Oh, my goodness. So, so, you, so we, Can't we just build, like, eight new New Horizons and just cross our fingers? Just, just keep hurling them hurling out. Hurling them out. <laughs> oh. Oh. Yeah, New Horizons can't change direction very much. Now, the that chance was... that that it's going anywhere near one of these objects is very, very, very close to zero. If it did, though, if it crashed into this thing... Would it would would <laughs> the, the sigh was great. <laughs> would have one month of warning. New Horizons can see something in front of it basically a month before it gets to it. So it's still looking ahead of it, and and if it sees something, you'll be like, guys, guys, break, break. You can't break. <laughs> like you wouldn't be able to do anything. Like you wouldn't be able to like change. You wouldn't be able to like nudge it in a direction because well, you wouldn't even know. It's te- it's spending okay. a lot of. So, hang on, hang on. So I'll just get the question right. It's spending a lot of its data just sending you back photos now. Are we still driving it at all, or are we just going, no, it's just an information repository now? So New Horizons is absolutely going to another little world, but it's going to a a really tiny world, especially even compared to Pluto. Mm. The world it's going to is the size of a CBD. It's a tiny, tiny little (laughs) ball of icy rock, and it's one of the stranger objects in the um, outer solar system because they're very, very numerous and they orbit in this very tight region of space. And one of them has a tiny little prince on it. A tiny (laughs) prince walking across the surface. (laughs) I'd be delighted. (laughs) But yeah, it's a a type of world called a cold classical. They're pretty numerous in this region of space where New Horizons is travelling, but New Horizons own... It's the size of a piano. It doesn't fit much fuel on board. Right. So, yeah, yeah, to, to make sure it could go to this world, 
they had to find it at least three years before New Horizons will ever arrive at it in order to make sure they could do a tiny little burn of the amount of rocket engine fuel that they have so that they would fly exactly past it. And we'll get photos of it just like we did at Pluto. So there's still just a little tank with rocket fuel in there, which you can mm-hmm. just flip on and off occasionally. Mm, effectively. Wow. That's, uh, yeah. that, wasn't you're running much, on fuels now. Like, there's the because, lights on the dashboard yeah, yeah. now. Wasn't that because... In fact, they, the light would probably be sending out enough energy to send it f- faster, <laughs> wouldn't it? <laughs> the, um, I, the, I'd read somewhere that the why it has fuel, because they didn't plan it, it, it. Their calculations and the trajectory were so precise getting it to Pluto, they didn't need to do certain burns to, to correct its orbit, or to correct its trajectory, sorry. It wasn't an orbit. Uh, and therefore, that left it with extra fuel at the end. They're like, hooray! Like, we can use this now for more science which is pretty impressive which is pretty impressive that's good yeah because it's a trade-off so there are these little city-sized lumps of icy rock that it's sailing past but the the distance between the worlds in the region of space that it's sailing through we talk about it being dense as a you know we talk about it being the kuiper belt like there's a lot of objects there's the distance from the earth to the sun between these things yes (laughs) and you are sailing up through them it's being a pointed light off in the distance of one side uh, Uh. on the port bow and another on the starboard bow (laughs) and it has to spend its tiny little reserve of rocket fuel to point itself and take a photo of each one of these oh my goodness so there's the trade off between spend the fuel to point itself at Earth to send back all the images of Pluto it took, spend the fuel to spin around and point at one of these tiny dots of light that's actually an icy world off each bow as it sails out through this region, and spend the fuel to make sure that it stays exactly on track to go past this 2014 MU69, which will get a better uh, name soon. Classic. Uh, <laughs> I like the catchy name there. I like oh. to call it Planet 10. <laughs> Just to annoy people. <laughs> Planet 10, the very tidiest little planet. That's right. <laughs> oh, the cutest planet of them all. Oh. It's clearing its own orbit. <laughs> and so here's a question then. I, I, I'm not too sure why. It, you talk about spending fuel, to, as you said, to point the, the New Horizons around and it's using up its fuel. Why didn't mm. they give it like a reaction wheel or something like that? Like a, like a spin- oh, yeah. It's, a, it's that kind of thing. But everything uses oh. power. Oh, I see. Right. Okay. Yeah, yeah I see. A, it's all a trait. There's a whole team of people who are managing this wonderfully intricate machine and making decisions about Mm. what should we get it to do in the next three years. Yeah, right. And some of them are trying to do this and some of them are trying to figure out what was happening on Pluto from the images that have come back already. (laughs) We're trying to plan, okay, what do we do two years from now? And it's, ah, so many tasks to juggle. (laughs) It'd be also scary. I don't know if this is a thing that you'd have to worry about, but you'd go, so you want to point the craft away from the, like, so its antenna is no point longer pointing at the Earth and then Mm. tell it to come back and find us again because the moment yeah. you do that i keep i worry there'd be that moment of we may never hear from this thing again like it, it, I, something could go wrong it could point in the wrong direction forever uh, or... I've, never, I've never run a spacecraft but i'm sure that goes through people's minds <laughs> 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 that'd be terrible you wouldn't can't go please come back please come back it's just like it's gone <laughs> so just to tag on my list of silly questions today um <laughs> If we got, if, if we suddenly discovered like zero point energy and how to harness it, <laughs> and we could just stick an engine on a spaceship that would just have as much energy as you'd ever wanted, that would change the game, I would imagine. Like, oh, we could, we could go fly through the plumes of Saturn's moon Enceladus and you know see what what's the salty ocean made of. 
We could go to the volcanoes of Io and see why there's fire fountains flying into space all the time. We could drop a probe in the methane lakes of Titan and watch it bob around and see what's on the floor of the methane seas. We could go to the big ice giants of our solar system. You know, mm. the just Uranus scoop, just do it, just buzz the tower. <laughs> <laughs> fly through their atmospheres, see the dorms that are the size of Earth itself. Because if you tried to fly through the oh. atmosphere... It, the friction is just like it's just slow, slow, slow yeah. drop. I can, yeah. yeah. I've been playing Kerbal Space Program. I don't know if you've heard of this game, but it's oh, like, yeah. it's taught me a lot about fuel and how to, and changing trajectories. And anyone who's vaguely interested in how a space program works, place Kerbal Space Program because I went, oh, this is why I want to go to here to here and do some science and get home. Just the level of planning I had to do and then build it and that sort of stuff. And then, of course, as Dan said, like, you can you go, okay, I, I go into this orbit, so I'm in an orbit of a planet, and now I'm kind of stuck in that orbit, but I've got to do the science that I have to do in that orbit, and then I have to get home. So I can't just wander around the planet like in, like in Star Trek. Go over there, Mr. Data. I highly recommend anyone to play Kerbal Space Program, or at least look it up, to, uh, mm. to work out how hard this is, you know, just to even go places and do anything uh it's it's it gave me another amazing appreciation for new horizons even more than i had before i would love the science fiction future where we can just go from place to place to place Mm. and Mm. and just do it so fast but at the moment you're looking at lifetime yes oh Ah. that's what and with that depressing (laughs) depressing (laughs) end but then again it'll be a lifetime well spent dr bannister i'm sure because it gives you time to look at transnetunian objects even more so hopefully and that's always going to make me happy. <laughs> Yay. And now, it's all about the anticipation anyway. It is, it is, it is. You're saying, okay, at the moment there's evidence that, that there's something we should, we should be looking out there. You're not dismissing Planet Nine entirely. You're saying we haven't discovered it. We need to do a lot more research. I think it's an interesting suggestion. Oh, okay, right. But we are very close to having the observations in hand that would allow this to be tested once and for all. Right. Would we... Do we have the surveys in place that can find this yet? Probably not. Uh, but, I, you know, we're, we're getting closer. I think in the next couple of years and at the very furthest in the next two decades or so, once the large synoptic survey telescope comes online in Chile, that will be able to look at the whole southern sky to these deep magnitudes. Oh, where wow rule it out rather well. But yeah, we could definitely do a lot of tests before then, I think, whether it exists. Will the James Webb Telescope be useful, like the next generation Hubble? Not for trying to find it. Oh, okay. It doesn't have a big field of view. It, ah. Again, the, eight, the JWST can see a tiny pinprick of sky at one mm. time. Okay. So, it'll, so once they do find it with something else, they can point the, the James Webb at it and go, there it is, sort of thing. Exactly. Ah. And we have a whole lot of worlds lined up that you know, <laughs> <laughs> know exactly where they are that we can look at before that's, then. Oh, wow. That's so amazing look dr bannister once again an absolute joy to work out what's happening in it just in our backyard it's mm. so nice to know that it's such a busy place that we can't get to <laughs> if you if right now if i said i have a billion dollars to put into one space mission and it has to be one you can't just say everything but a billion dollars yep. to one space mission where would you send it in the outer solar system she'd turn around Ooh. and ask for two <laughs> Yes. <laughs> Invest it. Put um, it on black. That's right. <laughs> Roll it up. Oh, where, where would I go today? I think I'd go to Neptune's big moon, Triton. Ooh. Because that's the only place out in the solar system where we've really seen suggestions that there might be ice volcanoes currently going. Oh. There's, there's, there's maybe suggestions on Pluto yet. but I'm there's, sorry, there's what? Ice, ice volcanoes. Yeah, 
Yeah, you get in the, the the Alice in Wonderland of the outer solar system um, ice chemistry. If you have enough, you get volcanoes and they're like water ice. So the volcanoes made out of ice, right? Rocky ice, like ice mm. that's too cold to melt. But <laughs> there's what lava coming, like iron lava or something coming up. Instead of being rock lava like we have here on Earth, you have ice lava. But that's just called water and steam, surely. Uh, not steam, but. Yeah, it's water with a lot of complicated things mixed into it. But it goops out like lava. It kind of goes blop and it goes all over. No, the it doesn't. No, no, <laughs> I don't believe this anymore. This is a long con. Yeah. But we have these wonderful suggestions from the only spacecraft that ever did go past Triton that there was something like this happening on its surface. Oh, and wow. I'd, I'd love to go back and see what's going on there. If Triton wasn't going around Neptune, we'd be calling it the biggest object in the outer solar system. Pluto and Eris wouldn't be duking it out for which one's the biggest. <laughs> no, it'd be Triton by a long shot. Oh, my so. goodness. Oh, well, then, ladies and gentlemen, please send all donations. We need to get a billion dollars together so we can send the uh, the Michelle Bannister probe into the outer solar system. What we're going to do is we're going to try to raise a million dollars, have yes. a giant hat created from that, and then pass that around yes. so that it can fit all <laughs> a billion like a dollars in it. Dr. Bannister, thank you very much for talking to us here and putting us all straight about Planet Nine. Thank you both again. That was Michelle Bannister. Yay. She is very, very talented at what she does. That's right. And t- has time to talk to us. Thank you, Michelle, for coming on again and telling us all about Planet X. So I- she's official friend of the show now. She's an that's official. three times. That's it. That's, it's three times as enemy action. That's the way it works. So, uh, <laughs> it's, uh, no, I, I realise I, I have a name. I have a name for the, the ninth planet if, if they discover it, which we've heard may not, they may never do. Chad. Is it Chad? No, not Chad. No, I want to call. That would be confusing. I want to call it the Snark, for as in hunting of the Snark or Jabberwocky, because it's something you can't find. So Snark or Jabberwocky. There you go. You heard it here first. That's what I'm going to call it. Or the Boogie Planet. Or the the Boogie Planet. That's what. Yeah, like the Boogie Man. Like you never see the Boogie Man. The Boogie Man's always hiding behind a door. Right. So you can only tell the Boogie Man by the way that other people are like in a weird orbit around him. That's how you can tell he's around. Yeah, I guess. Oh, my God. Actually, I bet. Yeah, you could do that. <laughs> like you could, you'd have to. How would you? How would you find a boogeyman? Infer his. Infer and his infer location. Infer his location. By well, well, if, if you know they're alive still, does he kill people? Is that, is that sort of boogeyman? We're talking no, he just scares kids. Just I scare think. kids. Well, wherever the scary screaming kids are, it's somewhere in a radius is where the boogeyman must be. Ah, so, so you'd have to like do a statistical map of like bedwetting or decibels. Like you just, you, just ah. get, you, have, you have like sound sensors. Like oh, it went above 120 or 130 decibels. There's a kid screaming, and you just, you could do. Do like a histogram of, of where he is, and you go, Oh, he lives in this house. There he is, yeah. he's, in, he's in that cupboard. Yeah. He's behind that door. It's just, just open the door. Yeah. What the ah! f- is that? Ah! Ah! You have been listening to Dan at smartenough.org and Greg at smartenough.org. You can favorite us on Twitter, you should do and that. poke us on iTunes, That's it. and <laughs> rate and review and subscribe to us on Facebook. Yay! Yes, please do. We'd love to hear from you. Also, write in, tell us if you like the show, and write in and tell us where we get things wrong, or if you have any questions. We should ask that. Any questions you want to maybe ask of different people we've asked in the past, please do, because our interviewers are probably quite happy to answer questions. Yep. I haven't asked them that, but you know, we'll, yeah. find, we'll find out. Um, that'll, be, that'll be fine. That'll be fine. Look, they agreed to be on this idiot I thing. Know. I'm sure they'd be happy to answer questions from people who actually are good at asking questions. <laughs> and as we always like to say, Boogie Planet. <laughs> Don't blame it on sunshine. Don't, Don't blame it on the moonlight. Blame it on the gravitation effect <laughs> in the solar system. Boogie Planet.
Well, I, I, I cut out most of my mistakes. Oh, <laughs> Whenever you make yourself look stupid, I'm like, yeah, I might just keep that in. Just turn that volume up a bit. Yeah, no. <laughs> he said that off mic? Yeah, I think I can recover that, actually. Blame <laughs> <laughs> it on the gravitation effect <laughs> in the solar system. Boogie planet. <laughs> I can't believe anyone listens to us. <laughs> it surprises me. You've officially pushed out Dr. Carl as my favourite science fun podcast. Yeah, take that, Dr. Woo! Carl. <laughs> he cries himself to sleep on his millions. And your old media. Yeah. <laughs> he, does a pod- he does many podcasts. Many podcasts. Yes, I know. They're all ahead of us. <laughs> but he's writing on the coattails of, oh, I'm, on a, I'm on the radio. I broadcast through RF signals. I write one book. Like and- a fucking someone from the 1940s. <laughs> And he writes books. I write a book a month. Books. 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 <laughs> Don't talk Where's his blog? He probably has a, Does he have a blog? Oh, he probably does. He probably does. Yeah. He does. He's, 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 he's really on point. He's really on point. <laughs> we should be on point. Damn it. I'm going to go join his podcast. You do, and that's it. That's, well, it would be. We're done. It would be. Well, that's exactly right. That's Get what, out. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> I'm sorry, you want the bubble pricked. Uh, uh, This this is exactly why... This show's all about the pricks. (laughs) (laughs) Exclusive with our tiny audience. Our audience isn't that small. If we had to fight them, they'd win. That's true. That's that's how you know you've got a decent-sized audience. Yeah.